This is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and as always, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Rath. How's it going, Johnny? Oh, what a weekend, Dan. Um, a s- super Sunday of footy, thanks to a few uh, COVID re, uh, reschedules. Uh, did you did you watch all the games yesterday? I watched a couple. There was, yeah, it was weird seeing the football starting basically on midday. Very <laughs> it was weird. pretty early start. <laughs> yes, um... Yeah, I'd love to know if someone actually managed to catch all five games because I watched, I watched maybe three, I think. Yeah, uh, but even that felt like too much. There's some really interesting games, I guess. Yeah, it was all just folded into that Sunday. Not a lot of interesting games before that, but yeah, really, the round really came to life on that Sunday, I suppose. Oh, it certainly did. So, what caught your eye then? A lot of things caught my eye this weekend, but I've got one thing in particular. It was just a really bad weekend for Queensland in general. Um, snap lockdown on the Saturday and both Queensland teams putting on ridiculously pathetic displays. Um, yeah, uh, Brisbane have got one win in the last month and that was over the hapless Gold Coast side. It's Yeah, not a, not a happy place right now. Yeah, I might have overestimated Brisbane's chances of winning out. Uh, I was saying that's possible for them to make the top four, but yeah, that's dead and buried. And yeah, their form over the past month has not been good. So yeah, I guess that Hitwood injury is, and a few other things, I suppose, just really have uh, seen them hit the skids a bit. Definitely the Hitwood injury. They don't seem to be finding the chemistry at the moment or the, the way around that in the forward line. And Gold Coast yesterday against Melbourne were pretty terrible, probably similar to what they were against Brisbane. But then you got, had an opponent with Melbourne who had a bit of a point to prove and, yeah, made them look second rate for the majority of the day after about the first 20 minutes. Absolutely. And um, look, the Ds did what they had to do and they, they had a point to prove, as you said. But uh, Gold Coast, back to the days now of putting together successive, just not turning up performances and yeah this is what you know they were trying to get past and it looks like they're back there so how much longer do you reckon Stewie Dew can handle some losses like this that are coming all too regularly now well it seems like that's going to be the question on everyone's lips now um you know is it time for a change and he's been there for about four years I think I think so yeah um well I think we might start to hear a little bit more, whether it's realistic or not, but we're starting to hear a little bit more about a certain uh, new-to-be-unemployed coach <laughs> possibly being thrown a few bags with dollar signs on them. They'd need to pay him a lot of money to go up there. I'm not sure Definitely. if Clarko wants to move to Queensland, but, yeah, if anyone can do something up there, maybe it's Clarko. And um, if anyone can make it happen or help make it happen, it's uh, the AFL. yeah okay all right well we've got a lot to get through today we're going to be building up towards match the round which was Essendon versus the Swans at the MCG some people calling it the game of the year I'm not quite sure whether I'd go that far but it was a really entertaining one so be fun to go through that one but before we get there uh, we've got a little bit of a top four watch so what's happening around there and then we've got some questions that matter so some really interesting stuff to get through here so let's go to the top four first. So relatively comfortable wins to both Geelong and the Bulldogs over the weekend over the Kangaroos and Adelaide, respectively. So they stay two points clear of Melbourne in first and second. 
Bulldogs on top there. And Melbourne had the huge 98-point win over Gold Coast on the Sunday. And uh, that cements them in third for the time being, two points behind the ladder leaders. And then slotting into fourth, Port Adelaide getting the job done over GWS by 27 points, playing their home game at Marvel Stadium. So, yeah, weren't able to play in Adelaide over the weekend with the COVID things that are going on. So they managed to kick the last uh, four goals in the last quarter to uh, seal that game, four goals to one there. So it was a pretty competitive game, but the power seemed to have the answers majority of the time. So a game further back in fifth, uh, Sydney, who had a good win over Essendon, as we'll talk about in more detail. It was a very free-flowing, high-scoring game. But uh, Sydney did what they had to do to get the win there. And they're definitely still putting plenty of pressure on Port Adelaide and Melbourne to keep winning to maintain their top four status. And as we alluded to right off the top, Brisbane's more or less fallen out of the equation to get to that 16 wins. It looks like you'll need at least 16 to finish top four. Uh, So the Hawks did a job on the Lions in Tassie, as they sometimes do to teams traveling down there. I think at one point they were leading by about 52 and the Lions came roaring back in the last when it seemed like the game was over, but too little too late. And uh, yeah, so it seems to be a race in five now, Johnny. Yeah, and just on that uh, Hawthorne-Brisbane game, I think eight goals to one in the last quarter, but really that just doesn't tell the story, does it? They have kind of really failed to show up in the first half for two games in a row now and yeah, that, yeah, disappointing. But anyway, back to the top four watch. Yeah, look, I think the dogs and cats are definitely the, the front runners, without question. Um, but there's still a lot of twists and turns, I think. There's some really interesting games coming up. And yeah, um, it's anyone's guess, really. Yeah, so as we alluded to last week, the pivotal game for Melbourne probably this weekend against the Eagles, which is an interesting in itself with the Eagles coming off such a terrible performance against Collingwood. But yeah, again, no givens interstate. And then uh, Port's hit a bit of form. They've got the dogs in the last round, so they probably need to win their next two to shore up their spot. And uh, yeah, Swans have got winnable games from here as well. So it could go right down to the wire to see who slots into that top four. Yeah, and I think Port is definitely one to watch. I mean, I'm starting to think... I'm not going to speak for anyone else. I'm starting to think I might have been a little bit harsh on them in the last month because it wasn't really the real port when you think about it. I mean, the number of these players that have come back to see Rosie, Dersmer and Butters finally all playing together again. And just when you... Also Fantasia. And also when you think that they've got Robbie Gray to come back, it's almost a completely different looking team. So I wouldn't want to be playing them in any of these last few games, to be honest. Yeah, they're definitely hitting some form at the right time of the season. I guess the knock on them still is they haven't beaten anyone in the top four, really. But uh, they'll have their chance come finals, I guess, to play one or two of these top four teams and see if they can turn the tables. Yes, yes. All right, let's get into the questions that matter. So Geelong had a pretty dour win over the Kangas on the weekend. So it was a very low-scoring game. So I think there was an incredibly large number of uh, marks for both sides Cats pretty content just to slow the game right down and keep their buffer and uh, you just not take any chances, I suppose. So I guess this is something we've alluded to over the journey with Geelong, their game style and, you know, whether it's going to take them to 
where they need to be in terms of winning a grand final. But the question I have, is Geelong's game style going to stand up in finals? If try if they do go for this like sort of ultra control style where they just want to keep it low scoring, or will they just play a different, a slightly different version of their game style? What do you reckon, Johnny? Yeah, How's, I think they work. I think they will sort of vary that style a bit. I think this is what we saw against North. I reckon is the extreme end of of the ultra control that they've definitely displayed this season. That they've shown that they can speed up the game at times as well when they need to. They almost pick the exact time that they need to do that. And that, that it's just a very good sense that they have. But um, yeah, I think that they they also score as well though. They've shown that they can score and they can you know they've got some some match winners across the whole park really. And yeah, it it's not always glamorous, but really I think they're going to use it when they have to. And if that wins them a flag, then and so be it. I don't think I wouldn't look at it as a controlled style that we've seen many other teams play in the past. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting that they decide to play such a dour game against the bottom of the table Kangaroos. I know they have been much improved in the second half of the year, but it's well, it, yeah, like maybe they just thought that this was the best way to not give Kangaroos a sniff. I'm not sure, but it's an interesting way of playing a bottom side. Definitely interesting against the the team that you're playing. I mean, you'd think that that's the time to, you know, get some guys into form and, you know, hopefully have guys like Tomahawk kick a few goals and, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, it's that that is that is an interesting way to put it. The, the other thing I found, and that was a really hot, it was a very not pretty game to watch, but um, a lot of uncontested marks. And it, I just wonder, is that, is that a bad thing? that's come in with the stand rule just more opportunity for that kind of uncontested marking game and just chipping and things like that yeah i guess it's almost the unintended consequence of the stand rule as well as giving teams the opportunity to open it up if they want to it's almost given them the opportunity to close it down as well you can just go at a snail's pace if you want because it's a bit easier now to find that short target so if you really just want to possess the ball inching it down the ground doing whatever you want with it really but just racking up these uncontested marks then it's actually making it easier to play this style so perhaps a bit of an unintended consequence of the stand rule yeah yeah Yeah, i think it's definitely it's brought in it's opened up some good things but it's also potentially allowed more of that sort of controlling chipping do you reckon if you're gonna try and tweet this to actually try and make it a bit harder to get a lot of these uncontested marks would it be something like extending the distance out to like 20 meters unless you're going inside 50 or something like that could that help or is that just yeah not, is that too much of a tweak i don't know that's actually not a bad idea i reckon i mean 20 meters is sort of what you'd aim for anyway i guess um like yeah forget that i've honestly forget half the time that it's 15 but um <laughs> yeah like i don't know, wouldn't be opposed to that um but it, i definitely needs a little bit of a look at i think it, it's not a bad rule i just think that in the off season they need to maybe yeah do a bit more situational thinking about it i guess yeah well, i don't know like maybe they don't mind having games like that but i guess it does give you the capacity to slow it right down but yeah i can see something like that if you move to like 
you're having to kick sort of 20 to 25 meters unless you're like passing it into 50. I think that could potentially work. Yeah. Yeah. I'll like, trial it out. Yeah. Looking. If you're doing a inside 50 kick, you could say, you know, even like 10 or 15 meters is probably far enough, but I don't know. Maybe yeah. that would help. Yeah. And maybe if you're passing within the 50 as well, you can keep it at the 15. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's more once you're getting it between the 50 meters is the sort of zone we're thinking about with this, where you can really slow it down if you want to, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, next question. Is this the end of the line for West Coast? So, obviously, got to the grand final in 2018, managed to pinch that against Collingwood. They've had a lot of cracks at the finals over the recent years, but I guess they've got an aging team, and it now seems that they're finding it increasingly difficult, especially away from home. So this was a pretty putrid performance against Collingwood, managing just two goals in the first three quarters. Ended up being a 45-point loss to a team who was in the bottom four in the ladder going into this game. So is this the end for West Coast? I'm not saying it's not going to be a hard game for Melbourne this week because they're a lot better at home. But you know, if you're getting if you're putting in these types of performances, and it's far from the first one this season, they've had three or four of these type of performances away from Subiaco. Well, it's not Subiaco anymore. Is it Optus Stadium? But uh, yeah, what's happening with West Coast? Is this the end? Jeez, it's it's not quite the end, but we're getting close, I think. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, they, as you said, they've had one too many of these performances this year. You can only have so many mulligans where it looks like uh, you literally haven't turned up. And uh, we've heard some of the words that Adam Simpson's used this year to describe his performances. I'm sure week was one of them at, uh, down at Geelong. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's too much for a final eight team, in my opinion. I mean, yeah, and... I didn't. I actually tipped Collingwood in this game because I, I looked at the fixture and I just thought, yeah, West Coast favourites, yeah, but West Coast in Melbourne, yeah, <laughs> and it's predictable. It's predictable. Yeah, and yeah, the the time is coming. The day is definitely coming where they're going to get to that fork in the road and they're going to have to make that decision. Uh, you know, there's bigger problems for West Coast other than you know outside of this season. Uh, and we've talked about them before. You know, they play a style which is not really all that contested with much pressure. They've got a coach who doesn't really tinker with the team much and, you know, doesn't really throw guys around into different mm. positions. does and, seem a little bit outdated, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and you've got an aging list as well. So the decision day is looming, I think, for West Coast on what they're going to do. I mean, are they going to retool and have another tilt at a flag or are they just going to go down the, you know, the die-on-the-vine path and just regenerate... The natural way, I guess. Um, and what's going to happen with the the style of players? Well, there's a few questions there. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do. There's definitely a lot of questions. I guess the fact that you know they have such a big home ground advantage in WA does mask some of their problems. But yeah, I guess it looked like the position in the eight was completely safe. And now after this result, there is actually a way that they can drop out. They've got three relatively tricky games. And to guarantee that they're going to make it. They need to win two of those. I know they're playing Melbourne next week, Freo, and then I'm not sure who they've got in the last round, but I don't think it's that easy of a game either. So I know a lot of the teams competing for that eight aren't actually winning, but there is actually a way West Coast can miss out on the eight. There's a lot of things that can happen in the last few games that would really influence those bottom few positions in the eight. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's really hard to predict. 
you can't get a, a read on it at all. But um, yeah, that last game of the season for West Coast is against uh, Brisbane. <laughs> And that's meant oh, to be, it's at the Gabba as well, isn't it? Supposed to be at the Gabba. Um, yeah, well, who knows where it'll be. But exactly. Yeah, so three games where you would definitely say, well, on form, West Coast is probably no better than a 50-50 in any of those games. No. That's what I would say. So no, I agree. Um, they're they're in danger. They're definitely, yep, they're in danger. Uh, you know, I expect them to respond this week against us. I just look, at least with a much better performance. But... Yep. Um, yeah, no, they've just got questions. I mean, I look at guys like Oscar Allen. Earlier in the year, they were talking about him being the next million-dollar man or whatever, like an, one of just like the King brothers. Um, he, I'm not sure what's happened with him, but they, I feel like he's been really mismanaged somehow. He, he looks like he's got no confidence at the moment. Yeah, no good at all for West Coast. All right, next question. What does a big win for Melbourne do for them going forward? So we've been calling out for this all year. Well, a lot of Melbourne supporters have the fact that they haven't really been able to put any teams away. I don't think they've won a game by more than about 30 points. So uh, it was close in that first quarter against Gold Coast. And then after about quarter time, Melbourne just completely obliterated them, slamming on the goals and really didn't relent until that last quarter where Gold Coast basically played every uh, one of their players in the back half for pretty much the whole quarter and just completely <laughs> shut the game down in Melbourne. Didn't r- really have a lot of interest in trying to put more score on the board after that, which you can understand oh, with definitely understand. the trip to yeah. Perth coming up. But in those first three quarters, Melbourne was pretty manic. Their forward half game was back. They were turning it over really well with the pressure. High number of inside 50 tackles. Basically, everything you'd sort of point to as a great Melbourne performance from the first half of the year so it was good to see that they could get some of that back but yeah what has this been for Melbourne going forward Johnny is I can't like there are two sides to this coin but I'm here I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this yep yep no fair enough uh yeah it was it was an interesting feeling after this game uh to it was it was a win we did what we had to do and we did it pretty well um but yeah, it was definitely uh, it definitely raised a few questions. Um, I mean, look, twenty nine tackles inside fifty. I don't care who you're playing. That's that's incredible. That's very very good. Uh, to six, by the way. Um, so that forward pressure was there. But um, and I, I, as you also said, I agree. Um, I didn't I, I didn't really look into that last quarter performance too much. I mean, it would have been nice to win by triple figures, but honestly. No point. Didn't matter at all, really. Especially because um, Melbourne's percentage means nothing with the draw. <laughs> uh, exactly, exactly. And, and having said all that, even though it did mean nothing, it, what it did do, I guess, it did send a bit of a message to the competition. Yeah, I think yeah. it and does it send a message to them as well. The fact it, that they can do this. Uh, yes, absolutely. It, it's instilled some internal belief as well. But um, it does improve the percentage. Not that it matters, but um, psychologically, I think it's definitely really good for the playing group. Um, uh, the the one yeah, as you, the one blemish is is the fa- like people think it's a failure to put away teams, but you know doing something like this it gives the opposition now actually something to think about. I think, I mean, when you, I don't know if they think like this, but when you sort of get the same kind of win each week or the same kind of performance each week, I just think late in the season that's going to become a bit predictable for the opposition. Now they've got to prepare for. Guys like, well, you know, Ben Brown, geez, he might actually be someone to put some time into here or, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. or any of the other forwards. I think it it just gives them some different tape to study, if that makes sense. So, yeah, not yeah. quite as easy to pick apart. Um, but look, yeah, in terms of 
did we I guess did we learn a whole lot about Melbourne? Yeah, look, we you know we learned that they can respond when they need to. But um, the big one, the big ones this week, the big ones yeah, this week, no doubt. It was great to see Jackson kick a couple of set shot goals from about fifty. So he's over the first part of the season, he was always a bit of a dodgy kick for goal. But I don't know whether it was just the release of the shackles a little bit, but he was flushing it, and yeah, he's actually got a quite a nice kicking action. Yeah, he's just got a nice relaxed routine, I think. Um, he, he, he's very loose, doesn't you know, um, doesn't sort of stiffen up on the run up. Like I see a lot of players do that just before they start. They just go. It just sort of seize up a bit. I'm not quite mm. sure, but yeah, it seems quite natural. Yeah, um, no, he was kicking through the ball. It was nice. Um, yeah, no, it's funny because a lot of the media in that uh, Kane Corns in particular, not that he was wrong, were saying, "Can you rely on Luke Jackson to kick a bag?" And yeah, this has got to do his confidence the world of good. Yeah, I think the thing that I liked most was they generated so much of their score from turnover, which in the last sort of six or seven weeks, that's been a real problem for Melbourne they just haven't been putting on enough forward pressure or turning it over enough in their uh, front half and I know it's probably easier to do that against Gold Coast than some other teams but the way they were setting up and they were just getting so many repeat chances it did seem like that they were getting back to some of that mentality and the structure that served them so so well when they got on that run in the first half of the season yeah yeah absolutely it was no secret that the bulk of our scoring is from those forward 50 turnovers and yeah, there's just no margin for for effort dropping. I guess in that area, we just have to keep that pressure up in the forward line for the whole thing to work. Basically, yeah. So you brought this up, Johnny. Are Melbourne scoring issues fixed? What do you reckon? Uh, short answer: No, not yet. Uh, because you want to see it against some quality opposition first. But encouraging signs. It was really good to see Ben Brown's work rate. He kicked, apart from kicking his four, I thought he did some really good, uh, you know, body work and then sort of making space in the forward fifty. Um, you know, taking taking a defender. That's what he's there for, I think. And um, so that was encouraging, as we mentioned before, Jackson, um, and you know, Bailey Fritch doesn't really get as much credit for his um, for his pressure game. A, a lot of people kind of think. I feel like a lot of people just assume he's a, he's a marking forward and that's kind of it. I saw him put on some really good tackles yesterday and and he tackles with intent as well. So, yeah, I think he's he's become a much more all-round forward, I think, and, and his, his set shots seem to be good at the moment too. So it's, it's definitely an improvement, but I'm really keen to see what it's going to be like against the West Coast backline this week. Yeah. We've talked about this a fair bit, so I won't labour the point, but... For me, Melbourne's scoring is going to be at its best when they are turning it over consistently in their front half. And that's where you get your best looks. And that's what they've been lacking over the last couple of months. So I think it is good that, to see that they've got that back. And I'm sure that they know that that's you know, their MO and the best way for them to function. And now that there's only a few weeks of the season left, I'm sure they'll be more dialed into that. We also mentioned, I think it was last week, uh, how... Being not not so cutting edge in our forward line, we do have to keep generating more opportunities. Yeah, and yeah. it's funny because I thought that we were quite accurate in this game, but we did actually finish up with more behinds. I think it was eighteen goals twenty. So, case in point, we really just needed to. <laughs> I think that's just the way to go. We just got the more opportunities we create, 
that's it. The more chance of winning. It's yeah. the money ball approach. Yeah, I don't think Melbourne's ever going to be a super accurate team, so no. it's going to generate lots of chances. <laughs> to be fair, though, a lot of the misses that we had weren't by much. I felt like we had a much better approach to set shots. Yeah, yeah, I think I agree we hit the that. post three times. You know, things I think it was like four. that. Maybe four, and yeah. there was a lot of rushed as well. But anyway, a few rushed. Yeah. Um, let's keep going because we've still got plenty to get through. Will Freo make the top eight? So they were dominant early in that game against Richmond over there in. WA only had an eight-point lead to show for at halftime. Both teams were very inaccurate, especially Fremantle in that first half. Richmond came with a rush in the last quarter, kicking three goals to hit the front, and uh, Freo really did well to steady from that point. So uh, goals to Schultz and Sarong managed them to to get them a uh, tight win in the end there to get a spot back in the eight. So, yeah, I guess Freo looked, as well placed as anyone to make a claim for that eighth spot. What do you reckon, Johnny? Are they going to finish at eighth? Oh, I was very impressed, very impressed with their midfield and how they stood up to some of the seasoned Richmond campaigners. Uh, Andrew Brayshaw, really fantastic game, but I loved it how he sort of took it upon himself to, you know, get those clutch possessions at the end and, you know, clear it and just make good decisions to allow them to hang on to the game. It was, yeah, very impressive. I thought Chero, that was one of his best games I've seen from him. and That was excellent to see him up and about. Uh, but it, will they make the eight? <laughs> They've got a massive game against Brisbane. Uh, if they can get over that one, I think that eighth place will be theirs to lose. That's uh, at Optus, right? Yes, it is, I believe. Yeah, pretty sure it is. Yes, it. Yes, it is. Yeah, so they would start favourites in that game, surely. I, I imagine they would start favourites, actually, yes. And um, if they can get... They do have the derby against West Coast the week after. If they can get one win out of those two games, then they finish with St Kilda. Um, that's a bit of a coin flip, I guess, because it won't be in Perth. But, yeah, look, if they can get a win out of those two, I reckon eighth place is theirs to lose. I wouldn't... I'm not super convinced as of right now. I'll definitely know a bit more next week, but... Right now, as stupid as it sounds, I would still have GWS falling into that eighth spot. Okay, interesting. Essendon's still there or thereabouts as well. So, (laughs) still a lot to play out there. All right. When will clubs realize that goal kicking accuracy is the most important skill in the game? It's a question we've kind of been playing around with earlier in the year as well. But I just wanted to bring this up again because on the weekend, or I think it was Friday night actually, Carlton St Kilda, it was 22 scoring shots to 21, with uh, Carlton having slightly more scoring shots, one more, but how much did they win by? They won by 30 points. <laughs> they kicked 18 goals four to St Kilda's 12 goals nine. At one point, Carlton was 17 goals two, so it's possible to be very accurate. And uh, so often in a game... You know, the teams have more or less the same scoring shots, but it might be, you know, a 15 to 30 point gap. So it just seems so crazy to me that it's just not prioritized more. Like we talk about so much as well, like, you know, good kicking is good football, bad kicking is bad football. Why aren't clubs recognizing this is the most important thing in the game, which it so clearly is? Yeah, well, 
you're probably right. There's a lot like scoring shots are usually quite level in a lot of these games, but the accuracy is making the difference. But that's yeah, we've we've talked about it a lot. It does make a big difference. Um, but they'll they'll realize it when they realize that our game is about execution and delivering under pressure and things like that. And you know, we're just we're at this place where there's a set way to go about the training program, as we've discussed. You know, there's plenty of fitness training, there's plenty of meetings and strategy and obviously the media obligations. You know, we always hear that there just never seems to be time for the goal-kicking practice. But, um, you know, I I guess maybe there will come a time where, much like how you decide to uh, change a game style to something that's a little bit unorthodox, uh, you know, you might change to a a controlled game style, like Dr. Long or whatever, uh, I think maybe they'll make a change to the way they approach their training and they'll decide, well, hang on, the most important way to win a game of football is by scoring. Maybe we should put a lot more time into that, get the best coaches and get the best uh, situational training for set shots and all that. Because, yeah, when they see the results, it'll be everyone will start doing it again, I think. I, I do feel like there might be a bit of a someone has to take that step and then yeah, everyone will follow the leader. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but the question is, why don't we? Why aren't we asking the coaches and the players this question? I mean, I'm sure it happens a little bit, but I feel like the media is always asking each other. It's always like, yeah. why? What's going on with goal kicking? Why don't they practice it? Be good if we could ask the people in charge. Do you, you know, prioritize this aspect of the game, and what are you doing about it? You know, those kind of things. Yeah, I don't know. They always sort of seem to give the same answer to those sort of questions, just like you know. It's part of the process. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. The players might be a bit fatigued. Like they just yeah. always come out with the same stuff, the same excuses, basically. So yeah, and then it becomes a bit of a a melting pot of excuses. Yeah, as you said, the fatigue and uh, you know, is there time to practice during the week and all? Yeah, it's just it's the same thing, isn't it? The lack of cap, yeah, soft cap space to get the specialist goal kicking coach and yeah. I just wonder, like, if a team actually prioritised this, made it one of their focus points, and they improved the accuracy by, like, 10 or 15%, that's easily the difference between, you know, not making the eight and making it, or not making yeah. top four and making top four. Like, that that can easily get you an extra two or three games. So, yeah, oh, yeah. to me, it seems crazy. No, it, me too. This isn't happening. But, look... I'm I'm actually confident one team will probably wake up to this and realize that you know the the road less traveled is in the goal kicking and um, yeah they'll make that gutsy move because you know there's there's not much traffic on the road less traveled either <laughs> so um, yeah someone just needs to have the guts to go for it and uh, yeah I guess just one thing before we move on uh, it I guess it's not just about goal kicking accuracy per se it's where you're getting your shots from as well so that that's partly game style as well like yeah are you getting your shots always from the fair way out or always on the angle but even when you're getting those difficult shots like these guys are professional athletes they can they can kick these goals so yeah we're not saying that they should be kicking every single 45 degree angle drop punt shot that they get but I think the routine ones we just we just like to strip it back to the fundamentals and get those right first I think yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so obviously 
there's been a lot playing out in the media with Clarkson and Sam Mitchell and the Hawthorne job, and it's now been revealed that Clarkson won't be there next year. Mitch will take over the reins a year early, which I think at the end of the day when all the dust settles, everyone will probably be happy with that uh, other than Clarkson because, you know, he probably would have wanted to stay at the Hawks in his own right once he realised that, you know, it wasn't going to be on his terms and he probably was happy as happy as anyone to go out the door, although some Hawthorne supporters would probably disagree with that. But my question is, can a coaching succession plan ever be successful if it's not actually instigated by the current coach? And the reason I ask that is because really the only two success stories that I can really think of, I guess, Worsfold and Rutten, you could probably say that was partially successful, although that was kind of tumultuous in its own way. But it's so the end result Paul Ruse, right? Breaking, yeah. yeah, Paul, Paul Ruse. Paul Ruse. He did, it. he did it when he was at Sydney with Longmire yep. to get him in and he's gone on to be a premiership coach and he did it when he agreed to go to Melbourne one of his stipulations was you know I'm only going to be here for a couple yep. of years you better get someone else in to take over from me and obviously that was Simon Goodwin and he's done as good a job as any Melbourne coach has done for a long time so uh, you have to give both of those a tick I think but yeah going back to the original question can these succession plans work if it actually isn't the current coach who's uh, pushing for it Johnny? Yeah, and, and you know the second Paul Ruse one. I mean, yeah, as you said, that that succession plan was uh, rubber stamp before he even signed on the dotted line. So, but um, look, the, the simple answer is no. Like, it, it just can't. I mean, you're usually doing a succession plan for a coach that's been around for a while, aren't you? I mean, and they've had some kind of success usually mm-hmm. as well. You're not doing it for a coach. Look, with with all due respect, you're not doing a succession plan for David T. You know, um, no. Uh, so yeah. Let's be honest about that. But um, if management makes the decision that it's time for the coach to move on without the coach's, uh, I guess, I don't know how much input he had into this, but it seems like it's against his will somewhat, then, uh, yeah, I just can't see any way how they can expect him to drag it out and coach another year and, and be expected to also develop the guy who's replacing him. I mean, this is what really kind of frustrates me hearing about this this Hawthorne plan I mean yeah you've got that part that side of it and oh, how can they expect Clarkson to, to keep going if they've already time to move on but I'm hearing a lot of people say and I don't actually really care about the next thing I'm about to say much at all I don't have that much sympathy for it but people are talking about oh but Sam Mitchell's not ready yet either he's 18 months away of, of being developed as a, as a senior <laughs> AFL yeah, coach yeah. Why would you even entertain the idea of a succession plan for a guy who's apparently nowhere near ready? Like, yeah, I, I strange think, one. I think they should be somewhat ready, and everything else that's happening in in the time being is is just gravy. Like, I, I felt like Simon Goodwin had done a very long apprenticeship by the time that they had named him the successor. I think he, yeah. he'd been at Essendon for. I'm pretty sure he was there for about three or four years or something. Um, and yeah, so he was cherry ripe when he started, but yeah, I just I didn't quite understand that. And um, yeah, like, are they really that stupid, Dan? Like, <laughs> I just don't I don't understand how what part of their thinking said Alistair Clarkson, seventeen years, four flags, uh, you know, maybe the last few years hasn't been great, but he's still coaching at the top of his game. We'll tell him that we're doing this, end his time here, but we'll tell him that he has to be coaching next year and develop the new guy. Uh, 
To me, yeah, to me, it's almost like a kind of way that the clubs are kind of sugarcoating getting rid of the established guy. Like, it's just, it's almost like they're not having the nerve to actually make the full cut. You, It's this sort of halfway house. You're trying to keep everyone sort of partially happy and you're getting to this point where, okay, you can have this little piece and you can have this little piece and we'll eventually get what we want, but we're going to make sure that everyone doesn't hate us in the process because we're going to sack the guy that everyone loves. So I think there's a part of that in it. Do you think it was a case of um, he's been so great for us, we should maybe give him a farewell tour for a year or something? No, like. I don't, I don't not, not quite that. that, but just uh, yeah. a chance to go out with maybe one more shot at something. I think it was more the fact that they saw they had to act on Mitchell. Like if they didn't act now, then they might have lost him. And like that's kind of what's happened in the past with other coaches in similar spots as well when you've got the young guy coming in and, uh, you know, they've kind of jumped to get rid of someone because of that. But why would they... Why would a club like Hawthorne be held to ransom by the thought of Mitchell leaving? I mean, it seems yeah. like they'd have the pick of the crop when it comes to coaches. If, if yeah. Mitchell wants to go, then, you know, see you later. I go to Collingwood. I think, I think they'd had him earmarked for a fair while. And I think... From the outside looking in, at least from my perspective, it was pretty obvious that Clarkson wasn't going to get another contract with Hawthorne yeah, no, that for whatever obvious. reason. Because, you know, it's a young developing side. Does he really want to, you know, do the next Go four again. or five years hard hard yards? He has had this process of, you know, top up, top up, top up, and it hasn't really worked in no. the last five years. So he was never going to get a new contract. So I think this whole thing just fast-tracked that whole process. Yeah. yeah. Was it handled well? No, no, but I think ultimately we've probably arrived at where they should have arrived to begin with. If they really wanted Mitchell, then it should have just been, I know it sounds harsh, but Clarkson, thanks, see you later, we're moving on. The thing is, like, the timing's never perfect for these things. No, like, no it's not. Like, um, you know, you never really know if you're fully ready to be a senior coach. If, if they were that hell-bent on Mitchell, I think they should have just gone... All right, Mitchell, you're in. Uh, yeah. We'll get a few assistants, you know, to help out or whatever. You know, like give you a good sort of team and you know the best sort of soft landing, I guess. Um, yeah, I just, I'm the fact that it's Hawthorne is what's surprising me the most. This just doesn't <laughs> seem like something that would happen yeah. with the, yeah. a really established culture and club like Hawthorne. It's a very sad way for Clarkson's tenure there to end after four flags, their most decorated coach at least in modern times. And, you know, people describe him as probably the best coach ever on paper, one of them at least. So, yeah, it's a sad way for it to end. I think he will get another chance somewhere else, obviously, if he wants that. But where it'll be is probably anyone's guess. Do you think he'll coach next year? I would probably say no. He seems like the kind of guy who wouldn't mind a year off. But, you know, if someone comes out with a huge checkbook, then... It's going to be hard to sit on the sidelines when you could be earning a couple of million dollars. <laughs> yeah. See, this part, well, this part's the part that no one wants to admit, but you can actually change your mind from now until the start of next season. So he might be <laughs> thinking, oh, yeah, it might be best to have a break. But as you said, if an offer comes in, he's entitled to listen to it. So Yeah, yeah. So at this point, I would agree. I'd say, yeah, he might be thinking it might be best to have some time off spend time with the family but uh i think there'll definitely be some suitors <laughs> for sure 
All right, last one before we get into match of the round. So this goes back to an earlier conversation we were having as well about momentum. So is momentum more likely to come uh, change? Let me start that again. A momentum change, is it more likely to come from a tactical change, a mentality change from some of the players, the relative fitness levels between the teams, or just random chance events? So in our earlier discussion, we probably referenced that it's a combination of some of these things, but if you have to pin it down to one of these things, it's most likely to change the momentum. What would you say there, Johnny? Uh, this is such a good question. I spent a fair bit of time on this um, today, just going around in a few circles, actually. <laughs> um, because, yeah, it's just a real brain teaser of a, of a, of a question. I mean, but I, I ended up coming back to this. I think, I think it's definitely mental. It's definitely not one thing, but I think the majority of it is definitely mental uh, because it comes from the ultimate rewards that you get uh, from mental application. And usually that's the ultimate reward in the sport, which is kicking a goal. So I think things like that build on momentum, the results that you get. Tactical changes, they give you the platform for it. They give you the, uh, I guess it's the conduit, uh, whether it's the right or wrong platform. Um, but you still got to go and execute. You know, you know, you don't hear commentators say things like, "Oh, you know, Team X has changed their tactics." That means the momentum's changed. Now, it's it's yeah, usually yeah. what happens as a result, and uh, it could be a few, you know, a couple of goals, a few good uh, tackles, and not a, a screamer of a mark. I mean, I find there it's usually a few acts of of the physical results, and 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 then that flows onto mental. Uh, so I yeah, think it's just those yeah. moments, isn't it? Yeah, the confidence builds, and I don't think the random chain of events is is far far fetched either. I think sometimes you can create your own luck, and a few random events happen, and yeah, the momentum swings. Yeah, well, I guess you can almost have the random event as being the first part of that. Some random event means you get sort of what you need to actually start building that confidence, and then from there things just snowball a bit. So it's funny what can change a game of football. <laughs> it is, it is, but um. Yeah, really good question. All right, we finally got there. So there was plenty to get through there, some really interesting stuff, but we're finally to match of the round. So as I alluded to earlier, it was Essendon versus Sydney played at the MCG. So going into the game, Sydney was sitting in sixth place and Essendon in eighth. So huge game for Essendon to try and uh, lock away the eighth spot, at least for this round. And Sydney needed to win to keep pushing towards that top four and continue their red-hot form. So, did you have any particular thoughts going into this game, Johnny, about this one? Yeah, look, I thought it would be a good game. I thought it would be reasonably close. Uh, I had the edge with with Sydney. I, I tipped Sydney, but um, yeah, no, I thought it was. I thought actually thought it was going to be an exciting game. All right, let's jump into the rundown. So Essendon managed to control the ball well early and spotting up some targets down the wing eventually led to Stringer marking about 40 out near the boundary. And from here, he made the set shot look ridiculously easy as his kick went as straight as an arrow. In a similar bit of play, they managed to control the ball again. The midfield pressure wasn't great from Sydney early and this led to Langford receiving at about 30 out and he was able to Set, he was able to get the set shot online there as well. So it was the Bombers with the fast start. 
The yeah. Swans did manage to hit back, though, um, through a thumping Papley set shot after winning the centre clearance. So, goal for goal early there. Yes, just the mid to forward work on full display for us, and then there, and Stringer looked like he was really in for a big one. Absolutely. So Essendon's back half transition was really on display as well as they were able to feed it out to the big loping Nick Cox out on the members' wing who took a few bounces before getting it in long to a contest that involved Stringer and Tipper. And it was actually Tipper Woody who found it on the ground, getting it out to Stringer who managed to spot up Smith pretty close to the goal square. And with a left foot snap, he made no mistake and it gave Essendon an eight-point lead going into quarter time. So to start the second, it was actually the Swans that landed the first two blows with goals to Parker and Hickey. The second one of these was thanks to Heaty, who got it on the wing and got an absolute bullet pass into Hickey, who nailed the long set shot on the left. Yeah, what a pickup he's been. He's actually a reliable set shot, and... Yeah, he was, he was there when he needed to be, and yeah, he's <laughs> been very impressive. When he's had that moment, he's usually kicked the goal. Yeah, Heaney's been a big improver as well for Sydney in the second half of the year. Some of his field kicking in this game was pretty amazing, so he's definitely uh, only going to get better, it seems, or at least when he can get into the game, he's really damaging for Sydney. He's the one player Sydney needs to fire, I think, to have a shot at the flag. If he's consistent, then, yeah, watch out. So the game was really starting to open up with three quick goals to Essendon. And Merritt was increasingly becoming influential with his great kicks going inside 50. He really seems to have a way of controlling his kicks, either spearing or sort of just uh, putting it up the exact right amount of flight. So he has a lot of different kicks he can do. And that actually gave Essendon a two-goal lead going into halftime. So it wasn't an overly uh, high-scoring uh, first half, 41-29 to 29 there for uh, the Bombers. So it did actually start to open up a lot more in the second half in particular. So, yeah, how did you see that first half there, Johnny? Yeah, it was a yeah, very, very exciting first half. I mean, the best was yet to come as well. It was kind of felt like there was still more <laughs> to come from both teams but um yeah look I was really impressed with Merritt's kicking as well he's, he's got beautiful left foot I think his left foot's his preferred isn't it um but he kicks very well on the right too and yeah I just I love watching Merritt kick the footy it's a, it's just one of those joys to watch he always seems to have a lot of space I yeah. don't know whether that's because he's not necessarily like an outside player but when he receives the ball it seems he's almost got that like Pendlebury effect where yeah. it seems like he has more space than he actually does. The game slows down around him almost, yeah. Yeah, he always seems to be picking a good option with the ball. Yeah. So to start the third quarter, it was actually the Swans who got two of the first three goals. And both of their goals uh, came by putting Essendon under a lot of pressure in the back half. In their back half, that would be. So the second was a big effort from Heaney, who beat two opponents in the centre square and managed to win a holding the ball free kick. He then spotted up Parker about 40 out, who 
uh, made no mistake. Another beautiful kick in here from Heaney. That was fantastic. He just sort of he just barged in there and like made sure he got that pressure on. And it was yeah, those defensive efforts that were really just yeah, they were keeping him in the game. And yeah, no, it was, that was a brilliant bit of play. Yeah, it was a real hallmark of what we're about to see from Sydney in this second half with uh, the amount of pressure they were putting on Essendon as they were trying to transition it out of the back line. A lot of their goals coming from turnovers, so that was a really strong part of their game. Oh, I felt, look, I felt this the, the first half was great, but uh, it became a heavyweight fight in the, in the second half. They were just throwing down. Yeah, absolutely. So the Swans had definitely lifted their intensity and pressure, and it was capped off by a wick goal from the square to give the Swans a one-point lead. So they're really hitting Essendon hard in this third quarter here. And yet another turnover came out of the back half where Parker was able to nail a set shot from near the boundary. So Essendon were under immense pressure here. They almost conceded another goal coming out of uh, the back 50 as well. And the Swans were absolutely swarming on them at about 70 metres out from their goal. And a long kick in fell perfectly for Papley, who was able to get the right foot snap on line from the boundary. This was an amazing kick. It didn't even look like it actually came off the middle of his boot. No. I'm not quite sure whether he fully meant it. No. Jeez, uh, we'll never know if he meant it or not. But uh, oh, that was a fantastic kick. And um, yeah, he's, yeah, he really, he, he really stepped it up a notch in the third quarter. I mean, Parker as well. But uh, yeah, Papley was... Was everywhere. Yeah, they're absolutely dominating on turnover in this quarter. I heard on the coverage that they said they had five turnover goals at one point oh, during this quarter. So they were just slicing Essendon apart once uh, they got it back. Essendon did well to actually just hang in there mm. in this quarter. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of what happened next. So out of the centre clearance, Goulden was caught sitting on top of the ball. And wasting no time, Stringer grabbed it and played on and launched a bomb from 55 that sailed through the goal, hitting the back fence, no less. (laughs) Yeah, game on. But the Swans wouldn't be denied. A slicing run from Blakey through the centre square got it into Papley, who was deep in the forward pocket, and he had time to assess the situation and uh, get another dribble kick online. So another goal there to Papley. So, and another good uh, pressure on the ball gave the Swans another from the square there. So, uh, yeah, giving the Bombers a real hard time. Mm. So to finish the quarter, it was actually two centre bounce goals in a row to Essendon, leading to set shots from Peter Wright and Zach Merritt, which meant after all that good work by the Swans, they only had a two point three quarter time lead to show for it. Yeah, it was anyone's game. I mean, it was a really, really tight finish to that quarter, and yeah, it was whoever was going to win it was just going to have to go up another level, even though they were really as far up as they could go. It seemed. So yeah, it set up a great last quarter here. So it was Sydney who got the perfect start. And it was Haywood who uh, got another kick online after receiving from Heaney again. So the fast start for the Swans. Back at the other end, it was Merritt marking a little bit too far out for him. It was about on 50, 
but Cutler was unmarked and he managed to hand off and uh, load it up from about 55 and got it through no problems. So the Bombers were up and about in the last quarter as well. So it was actually Sydney landing a huge blow in the next bit of play here. So it was actually Blakey who ended up draining the goal from 50 to give them a 13-point lead. So, yeah, plenty of goals in this last quarter as well. I guess the scoring just kind of exploded in this second half, yeah. Yeah, he really showed what he was capable of, Nick Blakey. Um, you know, just an ultimate footballer's footballer, it seems like. I mean, just getting through the middle of the ground, you know, testing McDonald Tip and Woody's pace. And, yes, that's the kind of speed that's really going to give a lot of uh, teams in the finals problems. Yeah, absolutely. Essendon did manage to get the quick reply, though, when Hind found it on the ground off the hands of the contest. And at this point, it was a seven-point lead to the Swans. And they got a forward 50 stoppage about 45 metres out. And off the ruck contest, it was Goulden who hit the ball with speed. And he managed to run past several pairs of players. He he must have taken like eight or ten steps to get further and further inside before launching a huge snap on the left foot that sailed through half goalpost height. And that one really hurt for Essendon. It made, meant they needed three goals to win with only uh, little time remaining. He's just amazing got that, goal, that one. It, Goulden's just got that natural neck. I mean, you see sometimes players wondering, oh, should I take those steps or should I just you know throw it on the boot? Now, he just seems to know exactly what needs to be done in the exact moment. Yeah, absolutely. And every one of those steps that he took, he was opening up the goal face more and more. So yeah. it made the kick actually easier oh, for yeah. him. Like, it was still a very difficult kick. He was a long way out for oh, a yeah. snap. But uh, yeah, great bit very of play. Very impressive. And short time later, it was more or less the, sealy, uh, the sealer as uh, Blakey was strolling into goal after an advantage call when Buddy had been paid a free kick. So at that point, it was a 19-point lead with very little time remaining. Essendon did manage to hit back with a couple of late goals to crack the ton, but in the end, it was a seven-point win to the Swans. Final score, 109-92. to One of the very rare games where both teams cracked the ton. Yeah, it's a little sad to say that, isn't it? But uh, yeah, fantastic game. Uh, wanted to point out one thing that I noticed uh, was uh, Jaden Laverd, his game for the Bombers. Uh, it was a, a big effort playing on Buddy Franklin. Uh, and he's done a good job in um, in a back six that's been really undermanned this season. Um, one of the things I've really liked about Ben Rutten's coaching this year is he's he seems to man manage players quite well, and he, he gives he throws a challenge to them, and they they've they've stepped up. Um, as we've seen with Darcy Parrish, I think he really did that with Laverd here, and yeah. He's just taken it on by the horns. I was surprised to find out that this is actually the third time Essendon's lost after scoring 100 points in a game. So I guess they're no strangers to uh, this sort of open style of play, probably less so than last year. But I guess when they do get into these shootout games, they are getting scored against heavily enough to mean even when they can score quite freely themselves that they're not actually winning. They do bleed goals when they sort of open up. Yeah, I think there's been a few games like that this year. But yeah, yeah. I think they, 
they conceded a lot of goals on turnover as we're talking about. So, yeah, an interesting little quirk there for Essendon. I don't think there might not even be one other team that's that's lost after getting to 100 for the season. No. Um, One other question. Uh, What do you make of McDonald Tip and Woody's form at the moment? Yeah, he's definitely been a bit quieter, hasn't he? And uh, doesn't quite have that spark. How have you seen it? Yeah, at first, he's the kind of player that you would sort of give a free pass to. Um, But at first, I thought that was just the case. You know, had a few qualities. He sort of just assumed that he'll kick his goals. But over the last three weeks, he's actually averaged five touches and no goals. Three behinds in in each of these games. And... You know, six weeks ago, he was definitely being talked about as an All-Australian. So, I just wonder if he's a bit burnt out at the moment. Yeah, it's possible. Not sure about that one. But, yeah, I guess when him and Stringer are up and going, that's probably when Essendon are at their best. So, yeah, it's been a bit more difficult in recent times without him doing his thing up there, I suppose. If they're going to make a push for this uh, final eight spot, there's no question they're going to need him to chip in with a few goals. That brings me to my next question. So how important do you think it is for Eston to actually make the finals this year? Do they is there any point in them actually making it? I know like every team always wants to make finals, but is it really going to make a difference for their progression in the next few years whether they make it this year? Yeah, that's that's a good question actually, and I don't think it's the be all and end all at all, really. Um it would be nice and obviously when you've got a young list it's great to get as much finals experience as you can into them early on but uh you also got that uh that flip side really i mean it, sometimes if a group's too young they can get belted in the first week of the finals mm, and yeah. it can be a bit traumatizing but I, I honestly do think it's good to have some finals experience whenever you get it but um no i don't think it's it's really not the be and end all if they don't make it this year yeah absolutely so sydney it was an interesting performance for them i guess like we described they had a lot of good play a little bit open in that first half and they sort of got their game together a bit more in the second half with plenty of uh, goals on turnover, but they still did leak a fair bit of score here. So how did you see this game from City's perspective? Yeah, I do wonder if if there is a weakness in this Sydney side. I do, I'm not saying that the back line is, is a big weakness, but if there is a chink in the armour, I do wonder if it is their back line and their back line's ability to handle, I guess, the fast ball movement and the fast, like, when the ball hits the deck kind of thing. Because, hmm, yeah. um, you know, you've got some really good campaigners there. I mean, you've got some real experienced and wily guys, you know, obviously like Dean Ramphy and that. But, uh, yeah, I, I just wonder, are they going to be good when it's pinging around in the finals and, you know, you've got that real helter-skelter pressure and everything? Um because they did, yeah, there were times when they bleed, bled a few goals. Yeah, so as we described earlier, Sydney's probably the one team that still has a chance to displace one of the top four teams. So a question that I just thought of then is, if you had Port and Sydney both playing at a neutral venue, this won't happen unless you know COVID intervenes, but who would you back in an elimination final? doesn't necessarily have to be an elimination final, but you know a knockout final... Uh, at the MCG between these two teams based on uh, yeah what you've seen the last few weeks? 
Yeah, that's and a whatever good... other factors you want to bring into it. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good one because um, oh, I'd love to see those two teams play in the finals. That'd, that'd be that'd be fun. Watch they had a good game earlier in the year, um, but yeah, that's who would I fancy out of those two at a neutral venue? I think I'd probably I'd probably give the edge to the Swans. Just because when they link up through the middle and they've got they've got that rebounding off the off the back line and they, it it's just it's so hard to stop and I just don't know if Port have a good enough defensive game to really cover that through their midfield and their back line. Um, they've definitely got the quality, uh, but I just think I don't know. That, that's a it's a gut call there, but I just feel like Sydney would be the one to to back. Yeah, yeah, I probably agree with that. I think. Sydney probably just at the moment to me has slightly more substance. I mm. think Port Adelaide is definitely building that more yes. in this second half of the season than they had in the first half. And with the players they're getting back, perhaps their best performances are in front of them. But yeah, yeah I would probably give Sydney the slight edge. Although, yeah, I don't know. Sydney has had a few performances this year where, you know, they have sort of played down to some of the lower ranked teams. But more often than not, they've still managed to get the result. And, like, I wouldn't really... You wouldn't call Essendon a lower-ranked team. So it was no. just... Yeah, it was just a slightly weird game for them, the fact that it was so sort of free-flowing and open uh, for much of it. Yeah, yeah. But, look, they came through it, and to win games like that, that's a finals-like atmosphere. If, they, if they're performing in that kind of environment, then... Yeah, yeah I think it's it'll a, stand a good, thing. good stead. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. All right, well, I think that's pretty much all we've got. So thanks again for jumping on the line, Johnny. Yep, always a pleasure. Great to have a chat as always. And thanks to all of you for listening as well. It's great to have you on board and uh, hopefully you're enjoying what we're doing from week to week. And uh, yeah, pretty close to the finals now. So hopefully there's the possibility to get some decent crowds to these games as they increase in importance. Bye for now.